Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, joined as I often am by a wonderful crew of co-hosts, Matt, Cassidy, Siora, and John. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hi. Hey. John, I had the privilege of seeing you in person at our Flow State Conference last week. Super fun. Got some t-shirts printed, got some 360-degree selfies made. What did you think about the conference? What was your take? Oh, I had such a great time. You know, I've been at Stack Overflow for almost a decade. And like, we've been talking about actually having something in person for the longest time. So not only to like, one, see everybody like, at the company in person, but also like a lot of our users too has been such a fantastic experience. And so to me, it's sort of like a dream realized. So I had such a great time. Yes. There were some users there, power users there who had helped create Stack Exchanges. I met one who was there for, I think it was, computational finance or quantitative finance. There was another one there who put up an amazing recap blog post of the entire event oh, with photos. Nice. And now I look bad because I was supposed to do that, <laughs> put up a recap. And now this <laughs> user has already done it. So they get all the reputation points and I just get yelled at by my boss. But yeah, it was a blast. I'm glad to see us back at IRL events. I think it's something we'll probably do again in the future. So success on that front. I wanted to drop a few news links in here and let folks give their thoughts. This one's from ZDNet. It says, Microsoft is telling folks hackers are using open source software and fake jobs in phishing attacks. I know there has been a few of these floating around, people pretending on LinkedIn to be from Stack Overflow, trying to recruit folks. But yeah, curious what everybody thought of this, these attack vectors and if you've experienced them yourself. I haven't experienced them, but I've seen people and like friends of friends experience these kinds of fake jobs where it's, it's wild, where they will make fake job postings that people apply for. And sometimes it's the people who I know are technical people who submit code challenges and everything. And then suddenly they have this job and they start and it feels very legit. And people are asking for all of their ID information and everything, but and yet right. they haven't gotten a work laptop or, or things like that. And it's a really scary way of getting information from people and making them think that they have a job. Just need all your bank information so we can wire you your salary. Right. Picture <laughs> of want, your Do you want to do direct deposit? Yeah, exactly. I really don't like this. Yeah. I mean, hackers always do this where they like, you know, come for vulnerable people, like old people who don't, who aren't tech savvy. But like for people looking for a job, that's really me. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's more than mean, but it's really mean. Like I know when um before I got into tech, I felt like I was constantly looking for a job on like Indeed or some of those other like job sites. And it was always something like really sketchy, some sketchy job posting where like and that got me into the habit of like always triple checking like Where's the location of the office? Who is this person looking the person up? Like, is this company even real? Like stuff like that, just because like the sketchiest people would be trying to like hire you. I never had to do that much with LinkedIn, but I kind of hate that this is a thing now. So people have to like be extra careful when you're already like in a tight spot looking for a job. That's, eh, that's not fun. It's, it's not It's fun. especially bad now, right? Like, I mean, especially with the market conditions that we're in overall, like yeah. there's a lot of people that just got laid off. There's a lot of people, yeah. especially people that might be earlier on in their careers too, that might be a bit more vulnerable and maybe just 
maybe don't even know what a sketchy sort of like job listing or even right. a company might sort of look like, right? And so people are particularly vulnerable right now, especially with also just how hot the developer hiring market is, it feels like. So I didn't actually realize until this conversation that it got so deep as like people like signed an offer and like yeah. started a job and then started keep like, I thought it was just like, Oh, send me your resume so I can get more PII, but like mm. taking them along for like weeks, probably months, who knows even longer just to siphon that information when people are that vulnerable. Like that's a really scary thing. You make a great point about it being like this time, because also normally you might go to the office and meet people there and that would, you know, kind of check it out. But now it's all remote. Like if they have a super quality website and maybe they, threw together a GitHub repo or something like, you know, they can appear substantive without having to have maybe like a lot of traditional infrastructure. Again, the the friend of a friend, the company was just like, okay, make sure you buy your own laptop and we'll reimburse you. And like did all of this stuff to get <laughs> oh, no. bank oh, information, finance information, just so much stuff. It, it's, Ciara, you put it well, it's very mean and it really yeah. hurts <laughs> my feelings that people would do that. I thought the attack vector was also very strange as well so it looks like what they were doing is they were getting candidates off linkedin and onto whatsapp and then sharing Mm. a trojanized instance of putty which is like an ssh software essentially and so they were using that modified instance to as an attack factor really i think just as a thing here typically with like interviews and stuff like that it's all done through email recruiters aren't trying to foster you off to WhatsApp or Telegram or another messaging platform. So just keep an eye out for that. The the article will be in the show notes as well, just in case you are dealing with somebody who's trying to push you off to WhatsApp or another thing. Yeah, have a look, make sure you're aware of how how this thing actually works. And John, to your earlier point, I do think, yeah, a lot of developers get one or two or three, you know, job offers a day, recruiters and headhunters can be very aggressive. So that can kind of make you tune out. Like you sort of just like they start to all feel very samey. And then you, your guard might not be up, you know, and one of them is worth looking into, but, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of just doing it as part of your routine or whatever. Right. Yeah. Just be extra careful if you're job searching. Be on the lookout for that stuff. Yeah. All right. I wanted to touch on another news thing here. This is Intel self-driving unit mobile files for IPO. During the period of 2021, there was a ton of tech IPOs and SPACs and everything like that. I think there's been basically none you know, it's a very small amount over the last year as we enter a bear market and a correction. But Intel is trying to get things restarted and they feel like self-driving technology is a, you know, something with a lot of future potential. Curious to know what folks' interaction with this has been like, if at all. I wrote about it a bunch at The Verge. I was super pumped when Waymo put stuff in Phoenix and started driving people around who were differently abled or on the older side. And this, you know, was a really amazing thing for them to be able to hail a cab anytime and get to a supermarket or a friend's house without needing to rely on somebody. But in my life, it still remains very abstract. Like I don't see driverless cars around. I don't see it like gaining any steam. For the four of you, do you have any experience with driverless tech and do you feel bullish about it? You're going to buy shares of the mobile eye right when the IPO launches? I think that generally people might be a bit distrustful at this point Mm. of self-driving cars just because there's been a couple instances where like someone got ran over or during the nighttime a person wasn't detected things like that or like i've seen a couple like 
some footage of like simple car crashes happening that were easily avoidable because something went wrong with a self-driving car. So I think that there's there could be definitely a market for it. Like you mentioned, there are people who are disabled or who are older or people who just don't always feel like driving if you have like a long drive or something like that. But I do think there are some kinks in the technology that they have to work out before people kind of Mm -hmm. like get on board on a broader scale. Like, and for that reason, I have never interacted like personally with self-driving cars. Like I've never been in a car and been like, you know, just drive for me. Like I'm cool with that. And I don't know if I will feel comfortable doing that in the future, in the near future, I should say. But I don't know. How does everyone else feel? Maybe some of you are more risky than than I am. I don't know. I mean, I I did demo a car once that did a self-parking thing. And I screamed the entire time, but it was also cool. In general... I think because I work in software, I just don't trust software enough for for this. Like edge cases exist. I saw this one video, for example, where someone in a Tesla was driving behind a truck full of streetlights that people hadn't put up yet. Like it it was a construction truck. And that just (laughs) broke the entire system. Because like the- That's a hilarious edge case. Because it wasn't even like (laughs) self-driving. They were driving the car, but the Tesla kept trying to brake- and they're just like, no, well, you don't need to break. This is just a truck in front of me. I just think maybe someday it'll be really good. But right now the world has so many edge cases. That's like a New Yorker cartoon version. It's like the truck in front of you is covered in stop signs and right-hand turn signs. <laughs> right. and like the self-driving car just says, I was like, just trying to obey the laws here. Right, exactly. Yeah, there's a part of me that would be like, oh gosh, when am I going to see a Stack Overflow question about like, oh, I'm trying to like actually get a self-driving car to work. How do I make this actually stop the way that mm-hmm. I need to? And like, I don't know if I want those questions necessarily. I really right. wouldn't want to get into a car um, when that's going to be happening. Oh gosh. Right. You don't want to take on that ethical hazard. It's like, here, let me just write a little code for you and share it, but then it doesn't yeah. work. You don't want yeah, it. That copy does, paste yeah. it. Driving has too many factors. There's too many chances for things to go wrong. Because I feel like there's a lot of like autopilot with planes and stuff like that, you know, like, but I feel like you're more likely to get into a car crash than a plane crash. Like if there was like a some sort of like self-flying feature, which maybe there is, I don't know, with planes, I would feel more comfortable with that than driving. Like there's just so much that can go wrong when you're driving. I just wouldn't trust it. Like, that would make me nervous. Yeah. My cousin is a pilot, and that is a thing. Like, uh, autopilot is a thing, but the pilots also have to be there. Like, it, it's right. They, they, right. they got to keep an eye out, but it exists. I was going to say so I've had a chat to my dad about this, who's been a pilot for his entire career. And one of his biggest complaints about the industry now is that you're not actually flying anymore. A lot of the stuff that you're doing while you're up in the air is all automated. You're basically there as a catch all in case something does go wrong. And that's, Mm. I'm guessing how driverless cars will eventually work. Like there's a ton of edge cases and stuff like that around what could go wrong. I want this to happen. I would love this to happen. I think there's a lot of human error that, can be attributed to accidents. And as soon as we roll people out of the equation, I'm hoping that it gets a lot safer. My, my biggest concern is people sleeping at the wheel, drunk drivers, like removing all those kind of like bad actors from the system and hopefully having something one day. I'm, I don't think this is going to be in the next five years, the next 10 years, but hopefully in the next 30, 40, 50 years, we'll have something that is safe, reliable and does work and then reduces all of those potential bad situations from happening. Yeah, I think you're right that if, you know, it was just somebody to snap their fingers and do it overnight, 
self-driving cars are probably safer than human era just because we're always texting and drinking and yelling at our kids in the back. But it's hard to give up that control and every self-driving mistake we see, you know, becomes that anecdote that's sort of like, I don't want this for me. Matt, I don't know if you know this, but I don't even know if this is true. I heard it at a party, but that in Australia now, in all new cars, they have like a breathalyzer built in. And when you get in the car, you like have to breathe to turn it on. Have you heard about something like this? No, I haven't. Does that ring a bell? Somebody was speaking about this a while ago. I don't think that's a bad idea as well, because there's uh, New Zealand and Australia don't have the best relationship with alcohol uh, as, mm. <laughs> as countries. I mean, this, this would obviously be a controversial opinion. People might hate this and some people might be for it, but I, I would be personally for that. The guy was from Australia and he said this was true. And here's a story from October of 2021. Australian cars will soon be fitted with the technology, sensors that can sniff out alcohol, and they won't turn on if you can't pass the breathalyzer when you get in. So you at least need to have one sober person in the car and hopefully that person decides they should be the driver. Doesn't it happen with when you've had enough DUIs that like you have to... Yeah, you can add something to them. I've heard about right. before in the yeah. United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here's a hot take. More funding for public transportation so we don't have to rely oh, yeah. on cars. Oh. Yeah. Ooh, I mean, yeah. Here we I'm go. Conversation like being in New York City, right? And it's like, I don't, I moved from Los Angeles over to New York City. And a big part of it was like, so I don't need to deal with driving and being in the traffic yeah. all the time. But it's because New York City has such a fantastic sort of like public transportation yeah. system. You know, Los Angeles did at 1.2 with a trolley system, but that feels like ancient history now at this point. You know, Matt, I'm with you. Like, in theory, I would absolutely love self-driving cars to happen. But what this conversation is reminding me of is that, like, there isn't just suddenly a moment when self-driving cars just happens and it's perfect, Mm. right? It's an iterative process, just like any other sort of technology that we're seeing. And for it to cross the threshold when it's like, oh, it's better than humans at this, which to, I think everyone's point like there are a lot of things that can go wrong with humans driving here it's still going to take us some time i feel like this conversation about self-driving cars like everybody's holding their breath for like is this the moment now is this the time is this a development where we (laughs) can finally get into like into this utopia of self-driving cars i don't think that moment's ever going to quite happen it's going to be a slow burn for us and at least at this point i'm not ready to jump into one just yet no i feel like this is quite similar to how they were talking about robotic machines for surgery and that kind of thing. Like Mm. I love the idea that somebody would be able to fix, like fix my ACL with a robot that would be able to do this with absolute certainty, but I'm not going to advocate for that just yet. I would like a surgeon doing the thing that they're doing maybe in like 20 years after it's, you know, it's been proven, but yeah. This is so interesting because I remember Ciara, you said this before, like, in the world of medical technology, you might trust things a little bit differently than you would in the world of consumer technology. I can't remember the episode, but it was a while back. My dad actually recently had a hip replacement and it was done entirely by a robot. It was like super precision and the robot has done it a million times. I mean, I assume there's a human there like to oversee it, but like they don't touch you at all. Like the robot does everything and the outcomes are, are just way better because it's so much more precise. Actually, there's two cool pieces of technology. They used to look at you and say, like, your hip's about this size. So, like, we'll go in there and break it open and then replace it with a size two or a size three or a size four, like a shoe. Like, roughly, you know, whatever your size is. Now they do, like, a 3D scan and they produce, like, a hip joint that's, like, your hip joint because they can, like, see it and scan it. And then, 
Also, the robot goes in and, and does most of the surgery for this delicate operation. Well, even I got LASIK recently and like the doctor held the machine. But I know like <laughs> in like 10 years ago, there, there was like a knife involved and all kinds of stuff. There was none of that. It was all lasers where the doctor held things, but the robot did everything for my eyes. And I can see today. The way you said it, it's like the doctor's comforting the machine. He yeah. held the machine. You've got this talk. Just affirmations. I feel like with medical situations, maybe it's a bit more controlled, if that makes sense. Mm. Like the environment is more controlled. I mean, driving is so not controlled. You can have anything happen at any time. And like, that's what kind of scares me is like the unpredictability of it. Because I would still be nervous having like a robot, like do surgery on my hip. I would still be a little like, yeah. but the probability of like, extreme chaos happening in the surgery room is like totally different from like doctors around with very high degrees trained for this. Meanwhile, in public, it could be anyone. There's drunk people running into your car. Who knows? Yeah, totally. Too soon. Too soon. Sorry. Too soon. (laughs) You know, when we're talking about sort of like, oh, the difference between like how much we would trust, you know, a, a robot doing surgery versus cars. I mean, I actually think it's another thing where it's like part of the reason we have experts doing surgery is because there are so many things that can go wrong. And so that's why we're okay offloading it to an expert Mm. here, right? But I think that the actual hesitation around self-driving cars is that, well, anybody or at least most people that are over the age of 18 should be able to do that. So don't take that level of autonomy away from me, right? Like if we were to take that to its natural extreme and be something like, oh, I don't know, like we're going to let a computer like start speaking for us. I think people would have a similar amount of like hesitation around it because I want that level of control. Like I'm not giving up a lot of control or not nearly as much when I'm having a doctor do something that I have very little expertise in any ways. Right. So yeah, that's true. It's less, I think, you know, maybe about the number of external factors of, or things that can go wrong, because a lot of things can go wrong with surgery too. But how used to are we about having control over something and are we willing to give up that, you know, control and trust something like, you know, a self-driving car? Yeah, you make a good, the libertarian point, which is like, I can own a car and then I can drive it where I want. Whereas with a driverless car, maybe it's going to say, you're not allowed to go to this state or like, sorry, if you want to go here, you'll need to sign this terms of service. And it's like, you know, that's a big loss of freedom. And I feel like that comes back to transit again, too. Where like, when I lived in New York, I didn't need a car because I knew like these things would be taken care of for me. I would be able to get on a bus at this time, on a train at this time or whatever. When I moved to Seattle, that was not the case. I could find a bus, but less reliable service, less infrastructure around it. And that's that's just kind of how it was. And so I could get deep on the transit side of things. But I, I do think that there's an element of that there. I do wonder if they will start rolling out, if and when this does become a thing, they'll start rolling out in more controlled environments. Say, for example, a highway or a motorway or a freeway or whatever it's called, mm. wherever you're from in the world. A train line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. True. Very true. Yeah. You know, if they start rolling this out, in particular instances so for example they keep all of those functions off while you're in rural or suburban areas and they keep it to like predefined sets where like there's not going to be somebody walking out across the road in front of you hopefully and that kind of thing and then they roll it out eventually yeah there's an interesting point that you bring up here cassidy about like public transportation too because we're talking about a technology right which could you know 
what if it, like there was public transportation, but it wasn't trains and buses and on the subway, but it was self-driving cars? Like, would that change the conversation, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, if we got to a place where maybe the technology was good enough or we could make sure that self-driving cars had the same sort of like level of access and affordability that like the New York City subway system does, for example, there's a lot of gaps in between there. But does that change the trust that we have with the technology anymore, right? Like in some ways, it's almost agnostic to me or, you know, could be. I'm really curious what that might look like in the future. I think I've I've heard some discussions of that, John, where it's sort of like in this utopian version of the world where everybody can just hail a self-driving car at any time and go where they want. Suddenly you have all this freedom of mobility, which is great. But from an environmental perspective, every single person taking a car instead of just sharing a train and doing yeah. a little bit of work to get out at this stop and walk here, you know, it's it's definitely going in the wrong direction. Oh, I was going to say, have any of the ride sharing companies done anything with self-driving cars? Yeah, Uber has a huge one. Say, yeah, Uber's a huge okay. self-driving program. Yeah, because I know that they've had a huge labor thing with like paying drivers and things like that. And not to be like an evil capitalist person here, but like it seems like a solution to that would be self-driving cars. So that's why I'm asking, like, have they tried to like get in on this new market or whatever? I don't know. Yes. Not that I'm a fan of that idea, but it seems like something that would be interesting. Again, that's that's given up a lot of trust. Could, could this yeah. robot drive me somewhere safely? What would it yeah. take for you to get into an Uber next year that would be a driverless car? I would be comfortable getting into a driverless car driving around a city at 25 miles an hour. Uh, getting into a driverless car on a highway at 65 feels... Mm. I, I know I would be very frightened. That's fair. Like the ones that are in Phoenix right now, they drive around a known neighborhood. The whole neighborhood is mapped. It's like 25, 30 miles an hour. It's basically driving around like a suburb exurb. And to me, that feels like, okay, what's the worst accident we could get into? And like the car knows the road and everything like that. But you know, there's every time I get on a plane, I'm a little bit scared. And every time I land and there's a little bit of turbulence, I'm like, why did I do this? You know? (laughs) Yeah. You know what, Ben? It's funny when you mentioned that, like getting on the highway, like, we have cruise control. Like that's a thing oh, that's sure. been around for such a long time. And so the and jump from sort of it. like, you know, <laughs> you know, go like, okay, great, great. Let's get the 25 miles per hour and just make sure that we don't hit a pedestrian. Like that seems scary to me, but like, you know, getting on and off the highway, changing lanes, how much of a gap is there? Like, you know, it's interesting. I think about this too, where it's like, even the cars that people are driving right now, like, there's a certain extent to which like, it's already a computer. Like when you're hitting the brake, it's not like, you're actually hitting something that's going to hit the you know tire that's going to make it stop. It's a computer. My that's car right now will, in cruise control, keep a certain distance from the car in front of it at the speed you want, slow down if the car in front slows down, stay in the lane and on a highway, make the turns for you. I mean, it, it will do all of that, but you just need to, you're supposed to keep your hands on the wheel. And yeah. I do, because I don't really trust it, but you know, it does all of that already. Oh, and if I forget, like sometimes, you know, like I'm whatever at a red light and I let go of the brake and I'm getting close, it it like sounds an alarm, you know, when I'm about to hit something. So it's got all that stuff. I think for me to get into a self-driving car within the next year, it would have to be like a 15 minute ride and they would have to pay me. (laughs) (laughs) And then I would do it. (laughs) Yeah. You pay me to ride in this car. Right. Right. Speaking of cutting edge technology from the future, we have a link here in the show notes says, Tim Cook questions the metaverse. I didn't drop this link. So what is Tim Cook? How skeptical is he? What does he think is going on? Yeah, so I put this one in because I'm not sure 
about your but it seems like most of my LinkedIn at the moment is full of recruiters saying, hey, we have this new metaverse NFT, so-and-so technology would love you to come work for us. And I'm not too enthused about it. And so I was having a look around, you know, the metaverse and, and what it is and, you know, what companies are doing for it. And it seems like there are some companies that are very bullish on the metaverse. And then there are kind of a few that are much more skeptical, but nobody's outwardly saying this is rubbish or this is trash. And this this was something that I found quite interesting. And this is the closest I've come to finding like a top level CEO kind of poo-pooing on the metaverse a little bit mm-hmm. and saying this is not something for us. And one of the points and takeaways from that is that they don't actually refer to it as the metaverse because if you ask 200 people what it is, they're first of all not able to articulate what the metaverse is and they're all going to have different definitions around you know, what it is. And I'm curious as to you know, all the folks here, what are your thoughts on the metaverse as it stands? Is it something that you're even remotely interested in? Are you paying attention to it? What is the general sentiment? So here's my thought. The metaverse does exist powerfully in the sense that some people value their virtual world more than their physical world. I know kids who are that into gaming, they care more about their avatar and their skin than they do about their actual clothes. They spend all their money to get the next greatest thing in Roblox or Minecraft or you know, Fortnite. Yeah, exactly. So in that sense, like the metaverse exists, but the metaverse of like all the digital worlds are interconnected and you carry this avatar with you back and forth and the metaverse extends out into the real world. It seems like we're pretty far from, from that world. And also, I don't know, I guess like it's, it, to me, it seems like there is a certain generation that, you know, got really sucked very deep into this, but also an awareness among people my own age and among a younger generation of like rising teenagers that like being that online all the time can be dangerous. And it's something that you need to sort of like moderate, you know, that it's not necessarily would be healthy to live 24 seven in the metaverse. I have a lot of internet friends. I hang out on discord all the time. I, I like being able to be online and, and talk with people who aren't necessarily near my home. I like that aspect of it. The concept of the VR side of things, I'm not as fully sold on yet. And maybe it's because I wasn't sure how I felt about the world in the book, Ready Player One or what, but I, I know that for myself, if I'm in VR for too long, I get seasick. I kind of just want to sit and be in my house and not be in some kind of virtual world. And so kind of like what Ben was saying, I think there's different layers to it. Like there are virtual worlds that exist, whether it's just a chat room with friends or you're playing a video game or something. But yeah, the the VR side of things, I see it as a game at this point. I, I haven't enjoyed it enough to be like, this should be my life yet. Yeah, I'm with both of you on this where it's like, you know, when I think of the metaverse, it feels like, okay, maybe it's just sort of the next natural step for what internet connectivity looks like, except it's a much richer experience than what we're currently sort of experiencing, where it's largely screens that we're interacting with. There's a different form factor to the internet, which is VR and AR and all of that stuff. But, you know, I share the same sort of concerns or the the sort of considerations that you're both raising here, where it's like, you know, I think about remote work already, like everything that's been happening with the pandemic, where everybody seems to just be in front of a screen for sometimes, you know, the entire day, and that's all you are doing. And then suddenly you get up in an empty apartment. Like, is that what we're going to be getting to even more um, when we're talking about a form factor like VR headsets that are connected to the metaverse, right? 
I'm really, you know, I've always been really interested in sort of like how technology can can sort of enable sort of communities here. But there's a certain sort of like line that you draw where it's sort of like, how much is this really the same level of richness that I'm sort of getting, you know, in meat space or IRL or whatever you want to call it here versus the metaverse that we're sort of talking about. As someone who was very into World of Warcraft at a specific time <laughs> and just kind of knowing how, you know, I put a lot of hours into that game, you know, hundreds, hundreds of hours. And it was something that I deeply cared about. I cared about upgrading my character to get all the different loot and transfiguring, transmogging, like all of the different gear and getting all the mounts and all that kind of stuff. And so I can kind of, I can see the appeal behind building up like an online character like this and being so deeply invested into something that is just an online reality. Basically I can, I can see the draw with that to John's point. I think the idea of what it means to have a community and how the metaverse might impact community building and networking, especially if you're considering that, say, for example, with some NFT projects at the moment, if you buy an NFT, you get access to a certain community and that enables you certain benefits within that. And I'm curious and a little bit concerned around how the metaverse is going to cope towards creating communities and fostering those and then like locking out people who aren't specifically part of that particular group or cohort or whatever that is. Right. I mean, getting back to World of Warcraft, you know, that was one where people from certain areas, they made careers out of farming virtual gold for other people, like yeah. the the virtual currency and the, you know, the, yeah, yeah, the, the meta world was valuable enough to certain people that other people could build a life for themselves around it. And so in that sense, like, I think the metaverse is real, right? Like, People are that attached to, you know, their virtual avatars and skins and all that other kinds of stuff. But yeah, I, I think where to everyone's point is like the line is for me is like, do I want that to seep out into the real world? Do I want all my online and you know identities and avatars to start to connect? And do I want to be wearing something on my face? <laughs> you know, how often do I want to be wearing wearing something on my face to make that you know all sort of start to happen? And I feel pretty trepidatious about that last part of it. You know, when we talk about sort of like the metaverse and sort of like, oh, it's going to get us even more plugged into screens, it's going to get us even more plugged into these platforms that technology companies are thinking about. You know, one of the things that I always think about is like, when we talk about sort of like these seems like natural extensions of the ideas around social networks, like with Twitter and Facebook, etc. But the sort of term around social technologies, it always seems strange to me that like, how have we not sort of figured out technologies that actually get us to meet in person more as a, and use all of that power to sort of like actually get you to have richer experiences in person, right? It seems like we're talking about the metaverse as like the inevitable place that technology needs to take us. But what if there was another direction that technology could take us? Like the closest I can kind of think of when I think about those kinds of uh, technologies in that direction are like dating apps. Like mm-hmm. that's one actually a thing. Right. Like, you know, that's actually a thing where you're like, you're using this app and you're using to facilitate really rich sometimes, you know, relationships that you have in person, but it doesn't draw you into sort of like staying on your screen forever. Like, you know, Hinge, for example, has this whole campaign about like, the whole point of this app is so that you can eventually delete it afterwards, right? right? Like, what is the natural extension of that instead of getting even deeper into the screen or a digital sort of world. I never had to do online dating. I'm just my, my age and I got married a little early, but to the idea, I don't know, it just occurred to me, like it would be kind of fun to go on that first date, that blind date in a VR setting that's safe, but where you could feel sort of like intimate, like just you and that person. And you could have a conversation and feel each other out and have a dialogue. Like 
that to me is an interesting application of the metaverse. Like one of those things that gets you excited about it. Although, yeah, then I agree. Like inevitably then it would be like, well, let's now let's meet in real life, right? Like that would right. be step two, but yeah, not, right. not necessarily Cassidy. I mean, you make a good point. Some people do prefer to just be internet friends and that's okay. Like I'm not begrudging anyone who prefers to do it that way. I mean, I always hope to eventually meet my internet friends, but I'm perfectly <laughs> fine with regular interactions being virtual because I'm introverted. Right. Right. <laughs> All right, everybody, let's end on that positive note and let's shout out someone from the community who came on and helped uh, some other folks. Awarded two days ago to GKG4, a lifeboat badge, an answer score of 20 or more to a question score of negative three or less that goes on to receive a score of three or more. So they saved a question from the dustbin of history with a great answer. The question is, how can I check if an array index is out of range? 67,000 people have viewed this question. So appreciate all the help, GKG4. I am Ben Popper. I am the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. You can email us with questions or suggestions, podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you like what you hear, leave us a rating and a review. I'm Cassidy Williams. I am CTO over at Contenda. You can find me at Cassidoo, C-A-S-S-I-D-O-O on most things. My name is Ciara Ford. I'm a developer advocate at Off Zero by Okta, and you can find me on Twitter. My username there is C-E-E-O-R-E-O underscore. I'm at Kinanda. I'm a developer advocate here at Stack Overflow. You can find me online at Kanda on YouTube and Twitter. And I'm John Chan. I'm director of engineering here at Stack Overflow, and you can find me on all social at John H.M. Chan. That's J-O-N-H-M-C-H-A-N. All right. Here we go. Bye. Bye-bye.